Dear Dr. Anup Kumar, welcome and so happy to have you in Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond podcast. Now, ever since I read your book, Michelangelo's Medicine, where you discuss about how we miss out on certain parts of the body because we are not able to see it or perceive it, some of the delicate parts with our own eyes. And some of the medical devices that we use to understand the body, there is something beyond that, something beyond what our eyes can see. This was like the aha moment as this is exactly what we treat. And coming from an Ayurvedic background where you get a lot of patients who are the leftover patients from modern medicine, who are not able to get the diagnosis in the first place and they don't know why this is happening. And reading your book and listening to some of your work was like an aha moment for me. I mean, uh, Dr. Anup, what got you started with this health revolution? You know, it really began because of the same thing that you perceived, which is that we are modeling human beings incompletely. Okay, and, and I think that's a very... That's a very mild way of putting it, um, especially in medicine. The, the whole background is that I was raised in the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, and my parents were very much into that. And that was like my first education was Advaita. And I found it very rich, very meaningful, very deep, very relevant. I think today many people don't realize it's highly relevant to your moment-to-moment -moment experience in your life, highly practical. And when I went to medical school, and then I saw how we were modeling the human being. I saw a lot of detail, you know, at the level of the organ systems, at the level of the organs, at the level of molecular biology, uh, at the level of even up to particle physics. You know, these are all levels of our anatomy, right? At, at finer and finer levels. But there was nothing about mind. There was nothing about energy. There was nothing about consciousness. There was nothing about the lifetimes that comprise who we are. And so if you model a human being incompletely, you will diagnose them incompletely. You will treat them incompletely. It's inevitable. But the problem is we had been so focused on this machine-like atomic model, and we have developed so much detail. Sometimes when you have so much detail and volumes of information, you can begin to think that you know most of what needs to be known because of the volume. But actually, a human being is infinite. So even a lot of information is still only a fraction of the information of who we are. So that was very clear to me. And then I could not keep on practicing medicine. Emergency medicine is my training. And especially if you're diagnosing and treating emergencies, if you're looking at the person radically incompletely, you're basically putting Band-Aids on them. You know? And we see that. People keep coming back over and over, especially here in the United States especially if people believe that this is kind of primary medicine, you know, or modern medicine, and that's the main one to be followed, then we get this incomplete framing. And that's when, for me, it, it was too painful to see my patients suffering like that. And so I had to speak up and say, we need a more complete way of modeling ourselves and seeing ourselves. And that, of course, opens the door to so much, right? Asking bigger questions. Who are we? What is this world? Why are we here? All of these things begin to open up. And that is what Health Revolution addresses. Knowing what you know right now, of course, you went to the mainstream medical education and then you practiced as an emergency doctor and seeing many patients who come with diagnosis, which could be idiopathic in nature, and then seeing some of them getting cured. 
maybe not in the traditional way but they are finding another support system that helps them toward the recovery seeing all these possibilities if you were to redesign the medical system or curriculum how would you do that number 1 is to correct a fundamental misunderstanding that is in the world today and especially in the united states and in western countries and that is a notion of primary medicine and complementary medicine so the standard idea here is that primary medicine is allopathy right which is what it's basically pills and surgeries for the most part most treatments are pills and surgeries or iv medicines and surgeries that's primary medicine complementary medicine is everything else right at health revolution we talk about the four engines nutrition movement connection and rest not just at the level of the physical body at the level of the mental body energetic body at all layers of human anatomy nutrition movement connection rest that all is there in every tradition right ayurveda traditional chinese medicine yoga siddha unani in every system they talk about the other aspects of the human being all that in the modern culture is understood as complementary medicine okay this is the basic framing now let's take a look at this what does complementary mean it means something that is added on something that's not fundamental but it's added on right but if you take away nutrition movement connection and rest from a human being no human survives let alone heals forget healing not even survival is possible without some degree of this right so you cannot call that complementary that is actually primary on the other hand if you take away pills and surgeries from most human beings they will still survive mm -hmm. some of them may even do better right well, so that cannot be called the primary medicine so this inverted understanding allopathy by nature is complementary medicine that is the true complementary medicine mm -hmm. it is a great misunderstanding and marketing that is happening in our society today that makes people think that for example what i do emergency medicine in the er is primary medicine no it's complementary medicine every emergency doctor every allopathic doctor is practicing complementary medicine and that is a great thing that does not put down allopathy that raises allopathy so we can see what it actually is but allopathy is meant as an add on to nutrition movement connection and rest primary medicine that is advocated in all healing systems and cultures for thousands of years right so this is what has to be understood primarily if you start there what happens is this we go from an understanding of a healthcare system as the hospital and the clinic and the doctor and this kind of relatively narrow concept of a healthcare system that changes all of a sudden when you say primary medicine is nutrition movement connection and rest the four engines of health and healing then what you see is oh healthcare is actually everywhere it's when i eat healthcare is when i sleep healthcare is who i talk to healthcare is how i talk healthcare is who i'm with healthcare is how i walk right basically nutrition movement connection and rest across all layers of the human anatomy that's the biggest change the biggest change has to be in our understanding and our vision it's not in the system outside as soon as most people begin to understand this what is primary medicine and what is complementary medicine at that moment the definition of healthcare changes at that moment the people that we choose to go to for problems changes because then we see who has the expertise in nutrition movement connection and rest who has the expertise in healing actually healing 
not just going along with the disease, not just mm -hmm. minimizing some symptoms, but healing the symptoms, right? So that to me is the bedrock, the foundation of shifting the healthcare system. When you look back, I mean, how the allopathic system has evolved, you get the basic of why behind allopathic medicine. I think we can zero it down to how can I prevent the person from dying and how can I help him not get into pain? I think those are the two questions that the allopathic system answers. If I look at it from a very broad perspective, and it may be there was a time when our evolution, when infectious diseases were very common and we would read about and we would think that the human body has a life of about 40 years. And then we got antibiotics and we got painkillers and now we live more and treat with a lot of phenomenal technological intervention. But now we have reached a place where those things are not worrying anymore. If somebody gets a stroke or a heart attack, as long as he gets into an ICU immediately, it even eliminates the possibility of any kind of further complications and forget about death, that's even eradicated as long as he gets the right support system. But today we realize the same thing that was applicable to you decades ago, ever since you know, today we have changed because the society was evolving in the allopathic system was being designed. It's not the same society today anymore because we live in a very different society. So we think we have to reanalyze, and I think that's where the idea that allopathy needs to be looked at as the mainstream, but we have to look at it in a complementary way. Yes. Well, again, this goes back to anatomy because Allopathy defines a human being as a physical structure, right? So if you define a human being as a physical structure, then your diagnosis and treatment will happen only when it manifests in the physical layer, right? So it can be developing in the deeper layers, information, energy, mind, then it shows up in the physical structure. Then the diagnosis is made, right? And that too, even if the problem is primarily in the mind or in energy, the diagnosis is still made only at the physical layer. And that's where the adjustment is. Even in what we call mental illness, right? Some experiences we call as mental illness, despite not fully understanding the mind. Even in those cases, majority of times, we're trying to adjust the mind through the physical body, neurotransmitters, right? By adjusting neurotransmitters, try to adjust the mind. So when you do this, naturally, it's going to be you know, what we call firefighting mean like putting out fires, the emergencies, we're very good at emergencies. I'm very proud of the work I do in the ER, right? But we have to know the context for it, which conditions we should be treating, how, what is the primary method of healing? What is the complementary method of healing? These things have to be clear. So it's still fundamentally a problem with anatomy. Now look at Ayurveda, right? You're the expert in Ayurveda. So in a very, to put it in a simple way, you have Vata, Pitta, Kapha, right? So, and panchakoshas, of course. And, but what are we talking about here? You're talking about anatomy, right? These three movements, vata, pitta, kapha, this is basically a form of anatomy. What we're saying is that every human is constituted of these tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. Even in nature, it's constituted of these tendencies. What does that mean? That means Ayurveda sees much deeper non-material levels of nature and of the human being. Mm -hmm. We don't think about it that way. So even in integrative medicine programs here in the US, right? There'll be some kind of Ayurveda component to teach some Ayurveda, but we don't realize what it's actually saying. What we are saying is what we are made of 
is not the things that allopathy says we are made of. That's actually the learning, the deep learning, right? What we are made of is something much more subtle that is not physical fundamentally, but expresses also physically, mm. right? That's a deep philosophical and spiritual shift that is not recognized. And that's the next step that we have to take, especially in, in Western countries that have subscribed to this philosophy of materialism. What they don't recognize yet is that what we call integrative medicine, all the other healing systems of the world have a fundamentally different view of what we are made of. So how do you think this changes the understanding that the body is not the same and it's beyond what we can see in the inside? And I was talking to a mental health expert, so he was saying one of the reasons why we are having a big mental health problem around the globe is because we are limiting this problem to a biomedical aspect. And it completely relies on the psychiatrist and we are not able to go beyond the biomedical physical aspect. And even if we go for the biomedical aspect, it is just looking at the physical side. There is something beyond that. Because we miss that part, the mental health problem is a huge phenomenon today and many people are suffering because of it. I think that's what we are trying to put here. Now, where do you see that the people who coined the body's physical side will come to an understanding that it's much beyond the physical sense. I mean, how can we come to an understanding about that? And where do you see the future of healing and uh, healthcare while we also come to an understanding in that? So the first thing we have to realize is that what we believe to be a scientific stance, right? Namely, yes. the atomic model of anatomy, okay? Mm -hmm. That... We are made up of organ systems, which are made up of organs, which are made up of tissues, which are made up of macromolecules, which are made up of molecules, which are made up of atoms, which are made of subatomic particles. And finally, we're made up of elementary particles, right? This is the atomic model of anatomy. What we believe is that the reason we have this model is because we are scientific. Okay, this is the belief, unexamined belief in in the dominant, the dominant belief in the world. Mm -hmm. I'll say it again, whether you're in the US or you're in India or you're anywhere, most people believe that the reason we have this model of anatomy is because we are scientists and we are being scientifically rational. It is scientifically grounded. It is not. It is a philosophical assumption. We have assumed that because this is what we perceive, these levels of anatomy that I just talked about down to the elementary particles, because this is what we perceive, we say, this is what we choose to be our model of anatomy. But mm. as I said, you can look at Ayurveda, you can look at Chinese medicine, you can look at Siddha, you can look at a lot of other systems, and you will see that their assumption is not that we begin as particles. That is not the fundamental level. So why is that? That's because it's a different philosophy. The initial assumption is different. Based on the assumption, we make all kinds of other assumptions, right? Based on the given. What is given that the world is fundamentally material? Okay, what do you look for? You look for a material model of anatomy and you get the, atom, the atomic model that we have now. Okay, the fundamental assumption is that we are non-material, that we are of the nature of, let's say, consciousness. Okay, okay, now your model of anatomy is different. Now you begin with, let's say, a mental model or energy or information or something else. And then from there, you derive the material aspect, right? Now it's the other way around. We assume materialism, so we assume particles and then we somehow have to squeeze in mind somewhere, the brain with the little clouds coming off of it, creating the mind, 
We have to ignore all kinds of evidence about children remembering past lives, about people who have had near-death experiences, right? We have to ignore yeah. all kinds of evidence to maintain this model of brain-creating mind. So this is the number one realization. Our model of anatomy is not inherently scientific. It is, we assume that this is based in science. It's not, it's based in unexamined philosophy, number one. Number two is even the science we have not followed all the way. Okay, so over 100 years ago, Max Planck, a physicist, decided that the way to solve his physics problem was to assume that energy came in little packets. Instead of one continuous form, energy comes in little packets, what we call quantums, right? A quantum of energy, a discrete unit of energy. And based on this understanding, he was able to solve the problem. And of course, that was the birth of what we now call quantum physics. What quantum physics says, I'm speaking as a non-specialist in physics, but I can tell you generally what it says is that we can see particles at the most fundamental level in different ways with different instruments. So depending on the way we configure the instrument, what we see is that little particles can be seen as distinct particles with a distinct boundary, or they can be seen as patterns in an infinite field of energy. They're both equally valid. There are different ways of seeing what is happening, different ways of seeing this. Now, a second step. We have to go beyond this idea that the quantum is best understood and defined in physics. It's not true. Max Planck borrowed the idea of the quantum, okay, which was already in existence for several centuries, by the way. This word quantum had already been coined for several centuries. He borrowed that word and applied it to physics. Today, if you say the word quantum, everybody thinks it's physics. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks it's physics is, has the expertise. Physics does have the expertise, but it has the mathematical expertise to define what a quantum is mathematically, okay? But you have to remember that this word was already there before. So this word existed in the mind of human beings, quantum. The concept has exi existed for a long time, and in English, for several centuries before quantum physics. So we have to ask, what is this quantum actually? Where does it come from, right? Is it just this particle out there, or is it something more fundamental? And if you shift your philosophical assumptions, what we will see is that the quanta that we are defining in the world are reflections of our own state of consciousness. This is not something I'm saying that physics supports. Some physicists do support this. But we have to go beyond physics because the quantum is not restricted to physics. The quantum is not fundamentally mathematical. It can only be represented mathematically. So the original quantum is basically this identity, right? If we go into Vedanta, we hear the statement, tattvamasi, right? What, this is an essential statement of the quantum, tattvamasi. Tat is that, that which is non-quantized, that which is non-local. Tvam is you and me as individuals, the local, the particle. Tattvamasi, the non-quantized, non-local, and the quantized local are equivalent. It's a mathematical equation. Asi is equal, right? That and this are equal. How can it be? Because one has to recognize that based on one's own identity, when we recognize our own nature beyond the local individuality, then we also recognize the nature of everything in this world that we perceive to be local, but in their original nature is a non-local infinite phenomenon. So why I'm saying this long answer to your question is that Quantum physics is an area of science 
that is not even fully understood in physics, of course, but forget that it's not even incorporated or thought about in medical school and medicine. We are still in classical physics. We're still in Newtonian physics. We're still in small things make up bigger things. Whereas what quantum physics is saying is that the smallest things are made from infinite fields, right? Now, apply that to your question. What does that say about our anatomy, right? What does that say about mind and mental health? Can we really say, can we really understand a person's mind, which we cannot even locate in space and time, which we have a hard time in defining? Can we really describe that best through neurotransmitters, right? Which is so much of the approach here in the West to what we call mental health and mental illness, phrases that we don't even understand. And I think that we use dangerously and incompletely. Mm -hmm. So to understand mind, which is not a local thing, which is not a physical thing, we have to be sensitive to the science that we are missing, which is this non-local nature of things, including mind, including body. And if we were to go to that level of understanding, we could have a much more complete model of anatomy, number one. And number two, our fundamental philosophy of what we are would shift. That would not degrade the current allopathic model. That would uplift the model for it to do what it can actually do and not do what it can harm. Wow, I think that was quite deep and interesting. Now, I'm just remembering one of your posts where you were telling that you're sharing about the experiences about people who got healed of inflammatory bowel diseases or inflammatory gut disorders with hypnosis or hypnotherapy. Now, the point is, when we see how much our emotions can have an influence on our health, but is it because we are yet to be able to prove it in the laboratory setting, that's where we miss this. How can we turn it around and make people become more aware? And how can more physicians be aware that we cannot ignore this emotional aspect of the body anymore? And how we can work more on emotional well-being equally, like how we treat the other aspects of the biomedical sciences? Well, the, the idea of the mind-body connection and the truth of the mind-body connection is obvious and everywhere, right? So if a person gets excited, mm -hmm. your pupils will dilate, yes. right? Your, your blood pressure will go up. Your heart rate will increase. This, this happens, right? If a person feels sad and unhappy, you'll see their face change. You'll see their shoulders change, right? The mind-body connection that, that we even have to talk about it as if, does it exist? Do we have to investigate it? Is, 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 shows how, I think, how much in the dark we are, how confused the state of society is. Because a mind-body connection is everywhere to see. It is obvious right in front of us. In fact, it's not even a mind-body connection. There are no two things. Okay, so when you're having a dream, you're a character in the dream. That entire physical body in the dream is also the mind. But in the dream, we don't know it's the mind. In the dream, we think this body is my body, and I'm doing some studies. I'm trying to discover my mind-body connection right? But when you wake up, think about when you wake up, you look back in the dream and you try to understand the mind-body connection of that character. You'll say, I didn't even see it. The whole thing was mine. There's no mind-body connection. They're the exact same thing. There's no difference, actually. It's just that mind can appear at one level, that second mind level. Mind can appear at a local level, my individual mind also. So there are different levels of mind. But it is that mind appearing as that body. So the mind-body connection is indisputable and it goes even much far beyond the mind-body connection. And the 
as to why it stays in place, you know, a lot of it is simply not wanting to change things, being afraid of change. That's the fact. There's a lot of money in the current system. There are a lot of salaries that are paid by not understanding this basic philosophical assumption that is not scientific, but philosophical, right? Because we are supposed to be scientists after all. So if we say, well, the bedrock of our assumption is not a scientific assumption, it's a philosophical assumption, you open the door to huge things, right? So my salary is dependent on that. My expertise as a doctor is dependent on that too, because I'm known as a person of science. And if my fundamental bedrock is philosophy, and I haven't really studied philosophy, then things get shaky, you know? Well, I understand that. Now, it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that there's no good use for this. From a different philosophical assumption, a materialist side, that's another way to approach it. It's also a very valuable way to approach it. But if you think that's fundamentally a scientific stance, that's a mistake. And so it is this, it's this dependence upon the continuance of expertise. It's this dependence on keeping money where it is now and keeping the circulation of money where it's now that prevents us from seeing this. You know, it's, it's a human tendency. We have to understand that all of us, whether you're a doctor or not, whether you're a scientist or not, whether you are, no matter who you are, we are human beings first and we have human tendencies. And science and medicine also follows that. So when a patient comes to you and they had a diagnosis which according to the current scientific terminology is saying that it is a disease that is incurable in nature. How in your expertise, how would you give them the right next step directions? I don't think we have the authority. Doctors have the authority to say that something is incurable. I don't think so because Chances for a lot of the things that we consider incurable, somebody has been cured or somebody has healed, mm -hmm. right? Or somebody has done either what we consider impossible or what we consider highly unexpected for many diagnoses. I mean, we have many of those stories on our podcast, right? So then what gives us the authority? You see, our education is in the education of the physical structure. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about myself as an allopathic doctor. The allopathic education is the education of the physical structure. We know that every human being is much more than a physical thing, unless you completely buy that philosophy of materialism. We know that a human being is more than something just physical. Otherwise, a dead body and an alive body would be the same. Yes. <laughs> the physical structure is the same, right? But there's something missing in the dead body. What is that? We have no measurement for that. We can only see its expression through the heartbeat and so on, right? So we know there's something more than that, but we cannot define that. We have not defined that. We are unable to reconcile our model of anatomy with the model of Ayurveda, with the model of Chinese medicine, with the model of Siddha. We don't know how to do that. So then how can you have the authority to say that a person cannot heal, right? It's not there. Furthermore, when people do heal, people are healing from apparently incurable conditions all the time. Right. I, I like to say we have 30, 40 stories on YouTube. These narratives, cases of healing that people have talked about that we're looking into formalizing now. We're looking into writing up case reports for them. When this happens, generally there's no interest. You don't see none of these people who I spoke to have their cases published in medical journals. Right. So then 
what happens is whenever somebody talks about this, we keep saying, oh, it's a miracle or it's unusual or something happened. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is because we don't want to know what it is. There, there doesn't seem to be any interest in publishing the story, doing the research. What are the commonalities, right? What are these people doing? What are the differences among them? Some people have done this, but the medical establishment as a whole has not done that because it challenges the expertise, challenges the way that we are doing things. So what is happening now is that the prognosis we're giving for conditions is, is wrong in many cases because it is not informed by all the cases of healing. So if the incentive of having a source of revenue is only that people are healthy, I think we will change the entire structure of healthcare. I think we'll be more careful what kind of food people will eat. We'll be more careful how we design the policies. We will be more careful how much of education on emotional well-being, healthy nutrition goes into the kids' school education so that we realize things are happening for the community's best. So somewhere we believed in this idea that the incentive of being healthy is very poor. And today, when you look at it, a healthy person is very bad for the economy. Like, he's not going to use anything. He's always going to be healthy. There is no one to get benefit from his healthiness, apart from his family and his uh, work surroundings. People can only benefit when he is sick. So I think that when you talk about the conflict of change, I think it is one of the areas that maybe the future revolutions that could fundamentally change. This is one thing that is definitely changing because, like I said before, when we start to realize what are the actual fundamentals of medicine, you know, what is health? It's a question that we don't talk about in medical school. What is health? It's healthcare, right? But what is health? Health comes from the word heal. Heal comes from the word whole. What does it mean to be whole? When your model of anatomy itself is radically incomplete, how can you even see and understand what whole means, right? So what is health? What is healing? What about human potential? What is the potential of a human being? I mean, what does that even mean to ask that question? Is it to, you know, go to school and get a job and start a family and have a couple cars, have a home, maybe take a couple vacations and then die? Is, is that human potential? Is, is that where we're going? Is that the goal? Right? I mean, these are the questions that we have to answer and these are the questions that we are not currently prepared to answer. In Ayurveda, the word for health is swasta. Like we have the two sounds, swa and sta. So swa, swa means my purest self, like the way I am created by nature, unadulterated. Like how I am created by the source. And the word sta means connected. So the more I am connected to my purest self that is what is considered as the ultimate health so like the words what health heals hold there is a lot of creation yes absolutely and that again is not something that's fundamentally material right and yet when we connect with that it influences our material out materiality it influences our mind immediately the mind comes to a state of peace Immediately, there's a, there's a light and an awareness that comes to us. And immediately, the physical structure also relaxes a little bit. You know, these are the fundamentals of health and healing. 
As a doctor, I see that you bring up the suicide rates of the physicians quite a lot here. And when I see some of my very good friends who are allopathic doctors, when I look back how they were doing their medical training, it was very inhuman training programs that they went through. Some of them had to go to a hospital at 4 a.m. and they had to be there till 11 p.m. And I don't know from where they got the energy to continue and it's just work, work, work. And I think the burnout rates among the doctors and even the paramedical staffs is quite high. And how do you say that could be because we are missing one of the the most important aspect of health? So how do you relate with that? Yes, that's, that is what it is. And, you know, going back to when you talked about uh, physicians and you talked about the incentives of disease being paid for, right? Versus health is not really being paid for because as we don't look into it, what is health, what is human potential? But even, even that speaks to something deeper, you know? So the solution now, even here in the US, we talked about, we talk about paying for preventive care, right? Primary care, getting paid more. But to me, you know, you cannot solve fundamental issues with just money. Okay. Yes, you can do some things with it, but it still doesn't mean that you're going to see the human being incompletely. What we have to recognize is that this understanding of ourselves, how we see ourselves, it doesn't start in medical school. It starts after you're born. It starts with the parents, the guardians around us who keep calling our attention to our physical structure, right? But they say, this is your nose, this is your ears, these are your hands. And then the child gets applauded for naming the eyes, ears, nose, hand. And this is our beginning of understanding of ourselves. We don't talk about joy. We don't talk about sadness. We don't talk about meaning. We don't talk about wonder. I mean, how many people really talk about this in childhood to their children? Very few people, right? And so what happens is this whole human being slowly starts to make their understanding of themselves smaller and smaller until they've learned to cognitively see themselves as mainly a physical thing and then wonder why things are not working later on. Those children go into a school system, and this is pretty much around the world now, that reinforces this. The physical world is what's important. You're primarily a physical thing. The world is made up of atoms. You make the little molecular models, everybody's happy. And nobody realizes that what we are doing is mechanizing our population. We are, we are teaching everybody and giving them high marks and high grades when they repeat that we are robot-like, right? Now, the best of those people who have learned that the best in some societies, in, in terms of the people who get the highest grades, then become doctors, right? Who are among the most respected. So the people who most strongly believe often that we can be adequately represented in this mechanical way, the people who have been highly rewarded in terms of prestige, in terms of money, in terms of their standing in society, for understanding people in a mechanized way, then are looked up to for their opinions. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to put down doctors, but we have to understand what is happening in this society and in this world. Now, you cannot reverse that whole lifetime process by changing the incentive and say, keep people healthy and we'll give you money then, and we won't give you money by when people are diseased. Yeah. You know, you, you cannot reverse That's that whole thing. Right. But what you have to do is speaking to the physician suicide rate, which in the United States, the physician suicide rate is two times that of the general population. Physicians are killing themselves at twice the rate of the general population. How can you have a healthcare system 
any, almost every other statistic should be secondary to this. Over one quarter of nurses say they're moderately to severely depressed. How can you have a, how can you even call it a healthcare system at that point? These are the people who are taking care of us, who are doing their best, their absolute best, but this is the condition of our education. Most people think it's a culture problem. It's not, it's an education problem that starts when you are a child that gets built up over time. So instead of cha simply changing the incentive and saying, we're gonna pay people for health and not pay for disease, that's not the solution. The solution is changing the educational system so that person who becomes a doctor sees themselves more expansively. They experience themselves more expansively. And so when they see somebody else, that's how they want to see them. That's what they know is healthy, right? Otherwise, what happens is our understanding of health is so poor because we have mechanized ourselves. I'm talking about the doctors, the clinical staff. We have mechanized ourselves so we can only see mechanics in a professional perspective. We can only see mechanics in the other person. That is the fundamental problem. If you look back at many of the training programs for the medical doctors, I think the concept of like the importance of circadian rhythm, importance of nutrition, importance of emotional well-being, I think it's missed or very underrated or passively taught in a very subtle manner in medical health. Yes, yes. It's because, again, once you start to mechanize things, then what you're doing is you are looking at partitions, okay? So you have a whole human being and you're looking mm -hmm. at 10% of them, okay? Yeah. You're not looking at the whole cycle that makes up the human being. Similarly, the idea of circadian rhythm is what? It's basically saying that we are inextricable from nature. We are nature. We're not different from nature, right? But if your model says you're these bunch of atoms here and it's it's a mechanical thing, you're not part of this cycle of seasons. You're not part of the cycle of, of the lunar cycle, right? You're not part of the, the sun, the earth's rotation, your 24 hour cycle, that those things are less important. What you've done is separate the human being out. You've partitioned the human being out of nature and trying to treat them independently, which is not possible, right? I, I actually just made a video on this. It's the new year, right? It's 2024. Mm -hmm. It's the new year. And so we say, happy new year. Everybody says the same thing, but have we ever questioned why is January 1st the new year? Like what makes us say this is the new year? Because a year basically is one revolution around the sun, right? So it's a cycle. Where does it begin? Maybe it begins on your birthday. Maybe it begins on my birthday. Maybe it begins in the spring. Spring is really a new year, right? After, after winter, after everything goes down. Now you have spring, the birds start singing, the, the flowers start coming out. Is that, so maybe that's a new year. So our understanding of years how do we count them linearly? One, two, three, four, now we're in 2024. But did the years really start 2024 years ago? No, of course not. Going on for billions of years, right? And what are years actually marking? Just as the months are marking how far around the sun the earth has gone. Each month is a different marker as we go around the sun. The years are marking how far around the center of the Milky Way, the sun has gone. So at some point, the years will come back to zero, right? I think it's a 230 million year cycle, 270 million years, something like that. It's a cycle and it comes back to zero, but we don't know that. 
we have segmented and partitioned time, right? Something that's supposed to be a rhythm. We have taken ourselves out of it. That is analogous to this circadian rhythm, right? This rhythm that we are part of the sun, everything happens in cycles. And once we understand that, we understand a critical aspect of health and healing. I think that should be a part of everybody's perspective. I also say that it's time you have your sleep cycle improved. And you see in many patients, one of the things that transforms their overall well-being is this. And people come and say that my blood pressure is much regulated. My weight loss is much better compared to with even before when I ate less and fairly uh, more of exercise. But my weight is much better because my sleep is better. These are the changes when we miss the foundation. So, doctor, could you put some of some more explanations on the and the four pillars that you talk about? Yes. So the four engines are nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. Okay. Number one is nutrition of the mind, and nutrition of the mind is what we are doing now, right? It's it's giving those ideas that give us insight and understanding into ourselves. That is nutrition of the mind. So much of the conditioning in our society, so much of the narratives in our society is about externalizing our attention onto something else and giving that our power. I need this, I need that. If I get this, then it'll be good. If I get this, it'll be good. Not recognizing the wealth of intelligence that we have. So nutrition of the mind is those nutrients that help us see the power that we have, help us see who we really are, help us see what is actually happening in this world, right? And getting rid of the other misconceptions, beliefs, things that we have not thought about that restrict our intelligence. Nutrition of the mind. Nutrition of the body, number one, all kinds of advice on food. But number one is at least eliminating the processed foods, right? The foods that are not really food to begin with, but they're so highly modified right? They're not the original substance, right? And then plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables. And then of course, there's customization, as you know, in Ayurveda, depending on the person. But what I would say, what I would say, Vignesh, is that if we simply eliminated processed foods, and if everybody just ate plenty of fruits and vegetables, I think 50% of the diseases almost would go just on that, right? I mean, and then you add nutrition of the mind, just that, 50% 50% of the diseases would go. Now, today, there's so much emphasis on like, you know, let me get my genetic testing. Let me, let me find out my microbiome. Let me find out the details, which bacteria are in my gut. Okay, no problem. We can do those things. But we have to understand that the fundamental things are general for every. We're all human beings. We all need oxygen, right? We all need certain kinds. Of, there's some levels of customization that we don't need to go to until we do the big things first. Right? And the big things are what make, make the big difference. So that's nutrition of the mind, nutrition of the body. Movement. Everybody knows exercise, right? Cardiovascular, moving the body, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out, great. But movement doesn't have to be just exercise, okay? Range of motion is movement. Especially from a second mind perspective, what we experience as the physical structure is a representation of mentality. So if you're doing range of motion in all your joints, what you're actually doing is stretching your mind. You will feel that your mind actually gets more expansive afterwards, right? The little joints that we never move like this, right? Or in the toes, right? If you move them regularly, you will see your mind is more open. Of course, the big joints, the hips, 
huge. The knees, huge. If we regularly move those through their full range of motion, there will be an expansion in the mind because the body is the representation of the mind. So movement is not only exercise, it's also range of, mo range of motion. Movement is emotion, moving our emotions, right? This is a huge one in our society. Why? Again, because of the radically incomplete education. Because we physicalize everything, the emotions get their way down the line. They're not as important in the society. Mm -hmm. And so those get suppressed. And as they suppress, what, what are they? That mind represents also as the body. So you will see um, issues with the physical structure as well. So moving those emotions, those stagnant emotions, you know, opening the doorway, taking off the ball and chain and letting them out and releasing them and processing them, that is healing. That's movement. And we have many cases of healing from that on our podcast. Movement of your creativity, right? What do I love to do? What is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to do, right? Not just what does this person say? What does that person say? What does the adult say? What does the authority say? But what do, what moves me? to say what, to do what. You, you can't hold that in, right? That is each person's individual expression. That is critical. Movement of your creativity. Movement of the breath, right? Breathing shallow versus breathing full. You can see in the ER, the person who's breathing shallow breaths and quickly is the anxious person. The person who's breathing slowly and deeply is the calm person. And when these two people meet, Depending on who is more grounded, one person's breathing will start to mirror the other person's. Either one person will become, both will become anxious or both will become calmer, right? So movement of the breath is critical. And we know this is one of the main connections between what we call mind and what we call body, depending on the quality of the breath. And even at the energetic system, the prana, right? So breath is vitally important in connecting the physical body, the mental body, and the energetic body. So these are different kinds of movement. Then connection, connecting with, of course, oneself, the deep questions, right? Who am I? Who am I beyond Anup? Where have I come from? Not just my mother's womb, but where have we all come from, right? What am I doing here? What is this world? What is this world fundamentally? It's not about getting an answer. But it's about sinking into the depth of these questions, right? In which we're sinking into our deeper layers as a human being, right? So connecting with oneself. And of course, mindfulness practice, meditation practice, all of this going deeper and deeper and deeper, like in that ocean, getting to the ground floor of the ocean and seeing how different we are and how different this world is as we explore. So connection with oneself, connection with others, of course, our relationships with others, right? Not just keeping it all within one person, but talking about it with others, exploring this with others, our relationships, sharing the good times, the bad times, that kind of connection. Then connection with the planet, which is one of the most forgotten ones. And honestly, one of the, one of, I think the most highly technological, most advanced technologies on this planet is when you plug into the planet. So you're bare feet in the soil, bare feet in the ocean, right? Sunlight on the skin, fresh air in the lungs, right? Directly contacting and plugging in. It's like charging your phone. You're charging the human system. We know there's electron flow between the human body and the earth if you're directly contacted. You're wearing shoes all the time, sandals all the time, no electron flow. It stops it. But if you're barefoot, there's a connection. All of our ancestors knew this. 
right? And if you're sensitive, you can feel this. It feels amazing to be directly on the soil, right? So connecting directly with the plant. The other one is eyes on the sky. I think it's one of the greatest technologies in the world that anybody can do. Look at the sky for a while. Even if you don't know what's happened, just do it. It's one of the few places where you can experience unity immediately because there's only one sky. You are in India, I'm in the United States, but when we look up, we're looking at the same sky. How amazing is that? There are no borders in the sky. Yeah. And so, and when you, when you see that, even if there's no intellectual understanding, that experience of unity dawns in the body. There's an integration that happens in the human system because we are accessing that technology. Right. And just like, you know, when the iPhone came out, remember, people didn't really, it, it seems so amazing. It seems so intuitive, right? It doesn't look technologically advanced. It's like, okay, you swipe this way and that, and it just works. It just seems so intuitive. It's like that looking at the sky. Is it really doing that much? Yes. But it's so intuitive. It's so simple. It's so easy that you can think there's nothing really happening behind the scenes. But there's a tremendous amount of integration that happens in the human system if you look at the sky, because that idea of integration, that technology of integration is a reminder that realigns the human system. So connecting with the planet, feet in the soil, sun on the skin, eyes on the sky, fresh air in the lungs, this is connection, right? Three kinds of connect connection with oneself, connection with others, connection with the planet. And rest. We know about sleep. We know about circadian rhythm. But how about resting while awake? Is there a way to do your work in a restful way? Is there a way to have a conversation in a restful way? There is. There is. And that is a skill that also needs to be developed. So these are the four engines, nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. And what you will see is that as a person does this, as a person activates these engines, They'll go through it once at one level, and when they come back, they'll see it at another level. So we have a course. We have a 28-day 28 28-day 28 jumpstart course. Each week focuses on one engine. First week is nutrition, second movement, third connection, fourth rest. And what people have told me is they've gone through it once, they experience a change, right? Each day we teach a little bit, and they have a practice to do. But then they say, okay, I did it. Now what's next? And what I say is do it again. I did it once. Do it again. Next time, it's a different course. Why? Because their sensitivity has deepened. Their understanding has deepened. Their emotionality has deepened. Their intelligence has deepened. So now you go to the same thing and you say, oh, now I see this within myself. It's like a, a good book. When you read it the second time, you say, I read it when I was 14, but now I'm 35, I read it. It's, it's different now. I see more to it. It's just like that. So these are the four engines, highly advanced deeply intelligent activators of our human potential. Oh, doctor, that's phenomenal. I think you described one of the core essence in Ayurveda. In Ashtanga Hridayam, it talks about the three pillars, Trayobastamba, that is Nidra, Aharam, and Brahmacharyam. And in that Nidra consists of sleep that you're talking about, or the recovery part. And Aharam is quite interesting that you mentioned Nutrition or nourishment is also for the mind. In Charaka Samhita, there is a saying that Vidya Tarpanam. That means the wisdom or information that you consume is also nourishment to the body. It's not just the concept that you consume something only through the mouth, but what you perceive through your ears, 
even through your skin we get a lot of nourishment like the exposure to the sun it's vitamin d and when we take brahmacharya people assume it's celibacy but when you deconstruct the word it's actually expansion of your truest self like in brahmacharya we have like three sounds bra ma and charya and bra means to expand and charya means the ritual and ma means my purest self so brahmacharya it's rituals to expand to your authentic self so when you put this all together it enhances longevity so it's not it's not just your food and sleep it's also how you expand yourself in many parts like okay there is one side of the biology that we need to recreate but also there is a recreation for the mind and spirit so that also plays a very important role in your longevity so when we put this all together we have a beautiful future to our healthcare if we can just open up and not limit our science to a, our current laboratory findings and i think that's where the the world of healthcare and healing must go yes i 100% because ultimately what we study in, in the laboratory is what we know you know so there's you have a laboratory because you're trying to understand something we don't understand of course so there's an unknown that we're studying but what is it that we are even choosing to look at that is the frame of the laboratory right mm-hmm. there's so much that is beyond that vision that we don't even know to study in the laboratory and that has been explored over thousands of years in ayurveda of course so these are the things that we have to bring to the forefront and they will absolutely shift the state of health and healthcare in this world so doctor one last question in your experience while working on this share one of the 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 miracle stories that you heard that are close to you now i don't like to use the word miracle but something like when someone was told that or they were given an ultimatum by a by a medical doctor that or maybe you just have two months to live or it's very difficult to reverse the condition that you're in but you saw that this patient in spite of these ultimatums they were able to reverse it or change it or get into a better health so in your personal experience knowing what you do and with your expertise in emergency medicine what is that thing that comes to you closest to your heart no i have so many i can tell you most of these people that i have interviewed are not my patients directly they're people who had these experiences and when we looked at them we saw these four engines in their life i remember one person dean hall he was a person who had leukemia and was told that it was severe and he was prescribed a, a certain course of treatment and he said no and what he always had wanted to do is swim the river he had never swam this river that he had always thought about and he wanted to do that he swam that river and to his surprise the leukemia was gone just mm-hmm. after that didn't take any treatments right and then his lymphoma actually became active and was severe and then what he did was start spending a lot of time in the forest because he read that forest bathing spending time in the forest connected with nature can help and then his lymphoma went away. Okay, I can tell you about Daniel Mackler who had a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis and who had severe incontinence, severe pain, was taking all the medicines, all the immunosuppressants, right? And ultimately was recommended surgery and he said this is this is crazy. Like I'm a young guy, I'm otherwise a healthy guy, I'm athletic, like why is this happening? And Ultimately he said no I can't do this anymore and he always had this idea he said maybe it's my stress at work and maybe you know what I've always really wanted to do is make films make videos 
So he said, I'm just going to do that. And he noticed that he as he started to do that, his, he made a huge decision because he, he quit his job, which was paying him well. And he moved out of the country to do this. He was started to travel, which he was terrified of because he was having such severe pain and incontinence 10, 15, 20 times a day. So he's like, how am I even going to travel? But he said, something in him was saying, I have to do this. I have to give this a shot. And as he started doing this, traveling and making these videos, incontinence went down from like 10 to 15 to 10 to five, and then stopped completely. All of his pain stopped, no symptoms anymore, right? By stopping the medication, by avoiding the surgery, especially with autoimmune conditions, we see this, right? Because autoimmune conditions, basically, we don't know what's happening. We just say the body is fighting the body, but why? We don't know because we're not looking at mental body, energetic body, and deeper. It's just looking at the physical structure, right? So these are two small cases out of 30 or 40 cases. And just remember that most people with these stories don't want to be on YouTube. They don't want to be in front of the world telling their stories. So for every one person, there's at least 10 to 100 people that are not sharing their stories. Understandably, of course. But what's happening then is that we get a false idea that healing is not possible when in fact people are healing all over the place from all kinds of conditions. That's so inspiring. It takes a lot of courage to come out of the same pattern of how everything has to go. I mean, this is how people challenged that earth is not the center of the universe. And we came out of this and realized that we were wrong. I hope we come out of this also and understand that there has to be another way. Thank you so much, Dr. Anoop. I'm going to put your content in the show notes so that people can access your content and also some of your courses. Can you also speak a few words on the health revolution that you co-founded so that we can also close off? Yes. Yes. So we, myself and Srisha, Srisha is my co-founder. She's in Bangalore, actually. Um, so we started, co we started Health Revolution to basically shift the state of society from dis-ease to healing. Okay, the, the narrative, the feeling out there, everything that we've talked about healing, we want to shift that to say that this, this world is going through a shift now. You can see the changes in so many systems, in political systems, in financial systems. You know, we had the, the pandemic, all of these things. There are some major shifts happening in the world, right? So what we have to do is navigate that shift, is nurture that shift towards the direction of healing, shift the state of society from disease to healing. This is the overall mission of health revolution. And the way we're doing that, number one, is by sharing these narratives, these cases of healing, so that people understand that, wow, so many people have healed from this, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's melanoma, whether it's cervical cancer, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's uterine cancer, whether it's ulcerative colitis, whether it's Crohn's disease, whether it's depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, leukemia, lymphoma, on and on and on and on. People have healed from this and people are healing from this right now. So if we can tell those stories better, more, more loudly, in more places, more frequently, then people will start to understand what is possible. And just when you shift that mindset, you start taking action. And of course, that by itself makes it more likely that this happens, right? So that's a major part of what we do is sharing these cases of healing and formalizing them. We're looking to publish them also in, in journals. We're creating a platform to do this, right? So that when you 
come when you get a diagnosis or when you hear something about your health or a disorder, you can go to healthrevolution.org and then you can eventually go to our app and our platform, which we're developing and just look up other people who have healed from the same thing, right? We also want to create that place where if somebody heals from something, share your story. There's no place in the world now where if you heal from something, we collect that data and we look into it. That is so critical. So we're going to be that place. So if you have those stories even now, you can contact us through healthrevolution.org and share your story and we can look into that and try to get that published. So creating that place as well as offering a solution. That's our 28-day jumpstart, right? Healthrevolution.org slash 28 days. That's the course. That's for anybody. We get so many requests saying, how do I start? What's the first step? What do I do? And I say, check out the course. Because no matter what the condition, if the human being, if our anatomy is the same, then the essential nutrients are the same. There's always room for specificity and we need that. But we need to go through a gateway first, right? If I say, you know, I'm, I'm specific, I'm different. What I need is I need to breathe carbon dioxide. I don't need oxygen. That's not true. There's certain gateways that all humans walk through, right? You, you do need oxygen, right? Once you get the oxygen, then you may say, there's this condition, so my percentage has to be adjusted. Maybe that can be the case, but there's nobody who just needs carbon dioxide and doesn't need oxygen. So just like that, the basics of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest have to be offered. And that's what we're offering now. And we want to scale this up to reach billions of people. What we believe is that everybody deserves access to this. This is not, this is not, uh, knowledge for the few. This is fundamental human intelligence that everybody has within them and everybody has a right to access. So this is another course that we offer as part of Health Revolution. And then once we make the fundamentals available, then you can go to deeper levels, right? The deeper level of nutrition of the mind of who am I, of connection of who am I? What is the nature of this world? How do I exist beyond this lifetime? health as wholeness, the deeper meaning of this. And then of course, everything in between there, clinician burnout, moral injury, how to heal, how to organize a society, how to transform healthcare. All of these are in service of health. And this is what Health Revolution is doing. Fantastic. I'm so happy that people like you are willing to take this forward and I'm looking forward to understand how we can collaborate into certain things. Dr. Anoop, it is a pleasure and thank you so much. Thank you.